Our reading today is from Romans 9, 30 through 10, 21. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they, have, they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to, to a disobedient and contrary people. Thanks, Kara. Um, a few months ago, uh, I was up here and I, I quoted a pastor, and it's, it's poignant for this text today, and it was simply this, the most important thing about you is your faith. Faith is more important than your 401k. Faith is more important than your relationship status. Faith is more important than what holds tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. in the morning. Faith is the most important commodity you have. It's interesting, if you read through the Gospels, there's two times where Jesus marveled. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, God in the flesh, was in awe. And you know what it was? 
the first time was in his hometown, shows up, and it says this, he marveled at their unbelief. The second time was a Roman centurion who showed up, daughter was sick, and said to Jesus, Jesus, if you just say the word, my daughter will be healed. And she said, well, why don't I go with you? No, you just say the word, and she'll be healed. And Jesus marveled at his faith. Faith is the most important thing in your life. And this passage is all about that. I want to submit to you, it, it tells us three things about faith. It tells us the antinomy of faith, two pitfalls to faith, and then thirdly, it tells us the essence of faith. So let me pray, and we'll get right in. Father, thank you this morning for your word, and as we consider uh, the variety of places we're coming from this morning, whether we are warm to you, whether we are apathetic to you, whether we are distant from you, or whether we are near you, we pray simply that we would encounter you through your word today and respond with faith. Amen. Um, the, the antinomy of faith. Now, that's a, that's a word I had to look up this last week or a couple weeks ago, so just we'll get there in a moment. Um, but this chapter is in a section in which Paul is really answering a big question, a big question for that um, original audience, and it was pretty much this. Why have the Jews, the Israelites, why have they rejected primarily the gospel? A, a vast majority of them had rejected the gospel, and that's the question. And the reason why that was so troubling is because of this. The origin of the gospel goes back to, all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12 and his descendants. It goes back to God making a promise to Abraham and his descendants, which, which were the Jews, to a particular people. And so you have this like origin. That's where the roots all go back to this good news. And Jesus is the climax of that story. And they're talking about how Jesus is the one that finishes the story. It's, it's the climax. And yet the vast majority of them had rejected it. And not only that, the other thing that was strange was that the Gentiles, those who weren't Jews, they were streaming into the church. They were streaming into this gospel, putting their faith in Jesus. In other words, you had people who, on the one hand, who knew the most about God, who were rejecting the gospel, and you had those who knew the least about God who were receiving this gospel. And it created this question, what, what's happened? What's happened here? And so last week, we were in Romans, the first part of Romans 9, Keith did a great job of unpacking it because Paul said, in essence, this. The reason why the vast majority of Jews have rejected the gospel is because God is sovereign in salvation. In Romans 9, it says that he has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he will have compassion. In other words, God is sovereign. He chooses some and passes over others. And that is a mystery. But this week, we see it in verse 32. Paul has another answer to this question of why has the vast majority of Jews rejected the gospel? And it says this in verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. 
in the very last verse of this section, verse 21, um, Paul quotes Isaiah 65, and he says this, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so here's Paul's second answer to the question, and we'll get to antinomy in just a moment, but it's this. Why has the vast majority of the Jews rejected the gospel? It's not because they didn't have enough information. It's not because they didn't understand it. It's simply because they rejected it. And they are responsible for how they respond to it. Now, with that context, think for a moment what Paul has just done. Paul has just said a couple things. Paul has said God is sovereign in salvation, and yet also we are responsible in how we respond to it. And do you see the contradiction there? Do you sense the contradiction? Which one is it? How can God be sovereign and save some and choose some, and yet how can some reject it and yet still be responsible for it? That's the apparent contradiction, and that is in, that's what's called an antinomy. Um, an antinomy is an apparent contradiction. It's a contradiction in which we hold it together, trusting that as we get more information, it'll all come together. It looks like a contradiction, but it isn't. And I know some of you right now are going to say something like this, see, pastor, that's why I don't really trust the Bible, because there's so many contradictions in it. And here's one of them, right? Well, let me ask you this. Do you trust science? I do. Did you know this? Did you know that light can operate as both particles and as waves? Did you know that? And that's actually a contradiction. I'm not a scientist, and I'm not in quantum physics. I'm not, I, I have to read up on this stuff. It's like Wikipedia, whatever. But, but what I will say is this, is that uh, science can't explain it. It's a contradiction that light can be both waves and particles, and yet what do they do? They hold to it. They say, here's the deal. We're going to hold to this, and we'll somehow, down the road, we'll understand how that's possible. So, as we submit ourselves to Scripture, this is the tension. And, and this is why, at the beginning, when I said the most important thing about us is faith, is because we're responsible you and I are responsible how we respond to this gospel. So that's the antinomy of faith. But there's two pitfalls to this faith. Um, when I was growing up, my friend had the 8-bit NES Nintendo. Does anybody remember that one? It was a great system. And one of the games on there was Pitfall. It was the, one of the worst graphic games on there. It was always horrible graphics, right? But it was basically you tried to get over these pits and you'd swing from a, a, you know, you'd jump at the right time to hit this line that would, this vine that would go, and you would, if you didn't make it, you would drop in the pit, and it would, the, the game was over, right? You weren't going to make it. Well, Paul, in a sense, introduces us to two ways in which you can miss out on this faith. And the first is this. It's works righteousness. Look at verses 32 through 33. Paul says this, Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled 
over the stumbling stone, as is written, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here's, here's the first pitfall. It is to live and think and believe that you can earn your way into a relationship with God. It is to live and think that you can, you can live a good enough life to be in with him. That's what the Jews had done. That's what had made them miss out. And here's what's interesting about this. If you think about the context, because in verse 30, it says the Gentiles who did not pursue a righteousness have attained it. There's an irony here. In other words, it's those who weren't pursuing God who found him, and those who were pursuing God who were interested in him who actually didn't find him. There's an irony there. And here's what it means. The most common parallel of this today would be basically us in this room. If you come from a religious background, it's actually very easy to miss out on this faith. And here's why. There's actually a couple ways later on, Paul quotes some things from Moses. And I want us to think for a moment, reflect for a moment on how he quotes this and what it means for those of us who would maybe identify as more religious or moralistic. But look at, look at chapter 10, verse 5. Paul writes this, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based not on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. This is, a, this is a, actually right out of Leviticus. It almost sounds as if Paul is saying, well, there you go. If you just live perfectly, you're in. That's how you live. You obey and you live and you're in. But the reason why Paul is doing this is he's trying to show them that actually if you reject the gospel, you have to live a perfect life. A perfect life. And that tells us something about not only Israel in that day, but also religious people today. And it's this. Religious people are oftentimes less honest with themselves about their sin. That religious and moralistic people can have a smugness and a condescending attitude toward others. Oftentimes, it's religious and moralistic people who say, man, why can't those people just get their life together? I've got mine together. Do you feel some of that? But secondly, in 10 verse 6, Paul says this. Um, it begins with this, do not say in your heart. And that's a quote right out of Deuteronomy. And it's, it's in a section where Moses is reminding them of why they've taken possession of the land. And basically it's this, they think they've taken possession of the land because they earned it. And he's reminding them, no, that's not the case at all. It's because of my grace that you've obtained this land. It's not because you were more righteous than them. And that identifies another aspect of how you can miss out on this faith. See, oftentimes religious and moralistic people, I'll put myself in this category, we can oftentimes think that God owes us a good life. God owes me. You know, I'm... I'm trying to do my best here. God owes me. When you begin to relate to God as if you've earned it, you begin to expect that because I've obeyed or because I've lived a certain way, then therefore, God, you owe me a good life. I've tried hard. 
I've tried really hard. You owe me. But the third thing about being religious and moralistic is that you're actually offended by the gospel. It's interesting, uh, in verse 33, um, uh, note how it says, he's, he's quoting Isaiah, but behold, I'm laying to Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Paul's quoting Isaiah, and basically it's saying, hey, when you hear this news, it's going to offend you. Why is the gospel so offensive to religious and moralistic people? We'll put it this way. Listen, every person out around you, to a T, I would say this, would, would admit, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm, you know, but I'm not all that bad. Probably be the next line, right? But here's what you need to know. Jesus will make you stumble unless you realize that not only you need to repent of your sin, but as one other pastor would put it, you need to repent of your righteousness. And that's different. This is what makes the Christian faith so different, so distinct. You not only need to repent of your sin, you need to repent of your righteousness. Everything that you think makes you acceptable to God. So you can't say, because I'm a good parent, God, accept me. You can't say, God, because I've been a faithful son, accept me. Or, God, because I've been better than so-and-so, therefore you have to accept me. And it can't be, God, because I'm, I'm more socially justice and active, therefore you must accept me. All of those are ways of trying to smuggle in character, smuggle in righteousness. And it's a pitfall. What's offensive about this gospel is that it welcomes anyone. I mean, literally anyone. I was reading a while back um, a story that was accounting the story of Chuck Colson. Um, most of you don't know who he is. Some of you do. But he was known as the hatchet man. He was, back in the day of the Watergate scandal, he was one of the seven that were tried um, that it ultimately led to Nixon's you know, kind of removal, or I should say just his resigning of the presidency. And in the midst of the scandal there was a friend of his who kind of was, was very successful and began to share the gospel to him. In the midst of the scandal, I mean, he was under fire, under trial, and he gave him a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, began to read it, and it changed his life. And when he became a Christian, I mean, literally there was just this outrage. How can that person be a Christian? And that's it. The gospel takes hatchet men. Anyone can come to Jesus. Anyone. So the first pitfall of this faith is really one that seeks to earn a spot at the table. You'll stumble if you do that. You'll stumble over Jesus. But secondly, it's this. Sincerity is not enough. Um, look at verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> Paul's talking about the Jews here, but he says this, For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. When Paul says they have zeal without knowledge, um, it means this, they are, they're committed. 
These are not fair weather fans. I mean, these are like the Buck fans that are out right at the stadium last night watching the game. That like they're not fair weather, right? They're committed, you know, like whatever. Yeah, they they love God. They are committed to God. They have passion. They're working hard. And yet Paul says it's without knowledge. And listen, this is so important because in our day, what I hear a lot is, listen, if you're just sincere in your faith, if you're sincere, that's enough. And Paul is saying, no, that's not enough. It matters what you believe. It matters what you rely on. Let me share an example. I always um, think for a moment of like an unfinished attic. If you've ever been up in one of those attics, one that's a little bit taller or whatever else, people will tell you, stay on the beams, right? Like you need to walk on the beams, not on the sheetrock, okay? And if you've ever, I mean, there's countless, you know, home video, whatever things that are hilarious because it's always people who like step on the sheetrock and fall right through, right? To like, you know, the next room. And they're like, wow, showed up here 10 feet below, you know? And here's the point. If you're in that attic, you can believe all you want that that sheetrock can hold you up. But it won't, right? It doesn't matter how hard you believe in it, how much you believe in it. The physical reality of that means you're going to fall through. I guess unless you're like, you know, maybe above 50 pounds. I don't know, whatever, right? But there's, you're going to fall, and so when, when Paul says that Christ is the end of the law in verse 4, when he says to submit to God's righteousness, what he's saying is Christ is the beam. Anything else is a sheetrock. You can believe it's going to hold you up, but it's not going to. You will fall through. So two pitfalls. Sincerity is not enough. And also, you can't earn it. You can't earn it. So what is the essence of faith? You know, it's, it's interesting. Paul does something here that, listen, I've read this chapter, I've been a Christian for over two decades, and um, I've read this chapter several times, and I have never seen this until this week. It's one of the things I love about being a follower of Christ and reading the Scriptures. There's just fresh things that hit you. I've always been, I've always wondered, because in verse 9 and 10, Paul says, he tells the essence of the gospel, he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I've always pondered, why those two things? Why Jesus is Lord, and then why being raised from the dead? I mean, for example, Paul has just, I mean, in the last five, six chapters, he's talked about the cross, why not put the cross there? Why not talk about Jesus' sacrifice? He certainly does not not have that in mind. But why talk about the resurrection? And why talk about Jesus being Lord? What is it there that's so significant? And here's what it was this week that absolutely floored me. Later on in verse 15, Paul says this, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And this is taken right out of Isaiah and it's a section where a herald is going to share information. I mean, back then they didn't have InstaFace, right? And by the way, I know I'm saying InstaFace, just so you are not judging me, okay? But um, how did you get news back then? 
You didn't pull out your phone. You waited for someone to come and tell you. And the picture is of a herald running to announce news of a great victory. And if you look in Isaiah 52, here's the news. Your God reigns. That's the good news. And this is what ties in to why Paul talks about Jesus being Lord and about his resurrection from the dead. Because what does that tell us? Think about it for a moment. Jesus is Lord. The Greek is kurios. If you go back to the Old Testament, that same word is used in the Greek. Um, it's translated from the Greek of Septuagint, and it's this. It's actually use of, of God's personal name, Yahweh. It's claiming that Jesus is God. It's a claim to divinity. But not only that, when you say Lord, it means he is above all. He has authority, and he, ha- and he does have the power. He's above all. And then secondly, when you talk about the resurrection, what does that say? Well, he's conquered the grave. And because of that, we know he's also conquered sin. What is Paul doing here? He's saying the same thing that was announced in Isaiah 52 is actually a foreshadow of what is to come, and it's simply this. Your God reigns. Your God has overcome. And here's what this means for you personally. We said this a few weeks ago. That God has done everything that needs to be done to take care of whatever would separate you from him. Sin, death, Satan, it's all been overcome through his victory, through his life, death, and resurrection. And here's what this means for you personally. Think about this. Think about this week. Think about, perhaps you've had some moments this week. It was funny. I was, um, over the 4th, I was hanging out with some family, and my sister-in-law, I think, put it so well. She said this, Let's just be honest, we're not our best selves right now. (laughs) After all the year and a half, whatever we've been through, we're not our best selves. But maybe you've had one of those weeks where it's just been that much more apparent. Or maybe you've had a moment where you've looked at your past and you recognize what you've done and there's shame. Hear this. God's victory in Christ means whatever shame you feel, whatever sin that you've done this week, it has been overcome That's, do you see how good news that is? How much good news that is? That's what this is saying. Listen, it means, it means also this, that like if, if I get a call this week and it's not good news from my doctor, and my life's done here over the next few years, I'm, I'm not trying to be morbid here, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to personalize this for a moment. I mean, my body's decaying. It means Christ has overcome even death and will guide you home. And see, when Paul says, you know, how beautiful are the feet? I mean, let's be honest, feet are not that beautiful. I mean, some people's are, right? Mine aren't. But the reason is, I mean, think about this. The reason why the feet are beautiful is it's because of the news. That's why they're beautiful. See, are you starting to sense a little bit what faith is like? It's not just a bunch of content. It is. There is doctrine, but there is beauty. It has got to grip your heart. It's got to draw you in. 
Do you see it? Listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, maybe, I'll say this, maybe you've grown up in this setting for years. Let me tell you, it's possible to grow up in the same for years and actually not have a faith in Christ. Do you know that? If it happened to the, the Jews, the origin of the story, they knew God really well, it, it can happen anywhere. But do you hear this, that what God has done for you in Christ, it's not what you do for Him. So in other words, it's not what you achieve, it is receiving. When Paul says, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Paul is not talking about some magical cant- you know, um, cantation you say. Say these words and you're in. He's talking about something that has to involve your heart. It's transferring your trust from relying on yourself and what you've achieved and resting your confidence on what has been done through Jesus. That is the essence of faith. And that changes everything. If you're a Christian this morning, one more implication. Verses 14 and 15, listen for a moment to these words. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. What is Paul saying there? In order for someone to believe, they need to hear it. In order for someone to hear it, someone must go to them. Someone must be sent. And listen, if you're a Christian, think about this for a moment. There's a passage, this is always phenomenal me, in John 20, 21. um, Jesus says this, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. He says this to his disciples. Jesus has been sent, and then all of a sudden he says, I'm now sending you. In other words, those who are my people have been sent to participate with this God on mission. In other words, it's this. If you've seen its beauty of the gospel, if you, even just a little bit this morning, begin to see what he's done for you on the cross and his resurrection in his life, it means you've been sent to share it with those around you. Um, a couple weeks back, we were with family. I was hanging out with my brother-in-law, and... Um, it was, um, we're sitting, they have this community pool thing. So we're sitting at this poolside, and we're enjoying a couple really good IPAs. If you want to know what they were, I'll tell you later after the service. Don't want to do a broadcast right now. But it was a really good IPA, and we're talking, and all of a sudden, one of his neighbors comes up at the pool and invites him over for the kegger later that night. I mean, literally, it was like, I don't know, it was like a six, anyway, I don't have to get into details, but it was a kegger. And they're talking, and um, later on, it was, it was, you know, been a good interaction, I'm walking back with my brother-in-law, and um, he begins to tell me about how over the last year, um, he's just had several conversations with his neighbor, and at one point he just shared how his neighbor's sharing, you know, just kind of the troubled past he's had, and then kind of where he's at now, and my brother-in-law said, hey, I've been there, and you know what's changed my life? And Jesus has really changed my life, and you know, it's not like at that moment, it was like this, his neighbor said, all right, I'm in, but can I tell you what? 
my brother-in-law's feet. They are so ugly. (laughs) But they are beautiful. They're so beautiful. Because he's living it out right there in his context. Let me ask you a Christian today. Where is your heart today? Because you've been sent. It's not a question of if. You've been sent. Are you apathetic maybe towards that? And be honest, you know? Maybe you're distracted. I mean, to be honest, it's hard to not be distracted these days. Are you burdened? You know what's remarkable about these last two weeks? Paul is doing some, I mean, let's just be honest. These, are, these texts are so high theologically. We're dealing with some really like, deep stuff, and yet along the way, Paul continues to share his heart. Um, there's um, just, look at verse 1 of chapter 10. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they, must, that they may be saved. Paul's heart is breaking for his people. This isn't just a head thing. This is his life, his heart. In other words, it means if our gospel, if we've seen the beauty of it, the natural overflow is going to be for others to know and experience it. Let me tell you what, this morning, if you're numb, if you're apathetic, if you're distracted, or if you're just like, man, I just, man, I need to, be, I need to grow on that. Continue to gaze at the beauty of what Christ has done for you. And then love those people around you and share and share. And then even your feet can be beautiful. Check that out, huh? That's good news, right? Let's pray. Father, we... um, Lord, we need your help. Um, there's so many times um, I fall into the pit of trying to earn um, my place with you. But we need your help to live out this mission of being sent with this beautiful news about your son, Jesus. Lord, would you give us boldness? Would you, by your spirit, lead us and guide us? And would those around us hear what you have done for this world. In your name we pray, amen.